Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Today's episode is going to be so good. But before we get into that, I want to take a minute to give a special thank you to our supporters on Patreon. I want to give a special shout out to our newest Patreon supporter, Jan Todd, who, among other things, is my fabulous sister-in-law. Thank you so much, Jan, for your support. If you have been thinking about becoming a supporter on Patreon, but you have not done it yet, I would encourage you to visit our page and learn more about why we're raising support um, for our show over there. Our page is patreon.com slash kindreds. You can start by pledging a dollar a month, three dollars a month, whatever you can do. And if you pledge at the five dollars a month or more, you'll get access to our special Patreon supporters Facebook group where you'll get access to sneak peeks of the show. We'll ask you to provide insight about things that we're going to be talking about, potential guest speakers and all that good stuff. So go on over to patreon.com slash kindreds to pledge today. I am so thrilled to have the opportunity to sit down with my friend Ashley Easter, who is a recent transplant to North Carolina. When did you move here? Um, Well, I'm really excited to be on the podcast. And yeah, we moved this past summer, June 1. June 1, so coming up on a year. Mm -hmm. Well, we're really lucky to have you here in North Carolina and to have you at my house. It's really Mm, great. Thanks. Ashley Easter is a writer, speaker, and a powerful advocate for survivors of abuse, especially those who have been abused by leaders within their faith communities. She's the author of The Courage Coach, a practical, friendly guide on how to heal from abuse, and she's also the founder of The Courage Conference, a gathering for survivors of abuse and those who love them to learn about ways that they can find healing from these past traumatic experiences. So we're so glad to have you here and to learn about your really important, critical work, I think especially in the moment that we're in. Uh, So I wanted to start just by asking you about your story, which I know is long and we don't have time to go into all of it, but... You were raised in uh, and finally left a very fundamentalist uh, faith community. So can you tell us a little bit about what that religious community was like that you grew up in? Sure. So um, when I talk about my story, you know, I'll try to give you like the nutshell version because there's a lot of details. Um, and it helps a lot of times when I'm talking to people to explain different definitions uh, because a lot of the language used in my upbringing isn't um, really at the surface in most co- cultural conversations. So um, first off, I was growing up in the homeschooling community, and I want to be really clear about that. Um, homeschooling is a very broad community, so some of the experiences people have are very positive, some are not, some are in between, so I don't want to project my experiences onto everybody there as very individual, but um, that does kind of give you a little bit of context for where I grew up in. And within the homeschooling community, there are other smaller movements, and uh, one of those is called the Patriarchy Movement. And you'll see this supported by uh, organizations like uh, Vision Forum, which is no longer running, or um, Bill Gothard's organization. Um, You'll see it in some mainstream Christianity as well, such as the Gospel Coalition. But Mm -hmm. um, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. It's actually called the Patriarchy Movement. A lot of people do call it that. Okay. Yes. Um, Fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, And basically that is just this idea that, you know, men are in charge of women, Um, you know, whether that is they are, you know, the father or the husband or some cases the pastor. 
um, and women are to submit. They are to be the keepers of the home. Um, they are the followers. Men are the leaders. And I mean, it's on a continuum, you know, so there's places where that's really strict and maybe the uh, male spiritual leaders deciding everything from what a woman can or cannot wear to, you know, a, a lesser um, version of it where maybe that only comes into play when they're making big decisions and the man has the final say. So that's um, one of the movements within the homeschooling movement. And then a smaller movement inside of the patriarchy movement, um, it's kind of like those um, matryoshka, like, uh, nesting dolls from Russia, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, when just like concentric like circles, need a flow chart. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So homeschooling movement, um, patriarchy movement, quiverful movement. Right, okay, I know a little bit about that, okay. but tell us more about what that is. Right, so the closest pop culture example I have to that would be like the Duggars, 19 Kids and Counting. Yeah, or whatever number they're on now. Right. Is it 19? I don't know, I haven't checked. Well, the original family, 19, yes, but now some are married and it's just Right, they're, they're uh, yeah, multiplying. <laughs> yes, so that basically is taking some of the um, passages in um, Psalms about arrows being like, um, uh, children being like arrows in a mighty man's quiver. And oh, yeah, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So you're like shooting out these arrows, which are children, into the world. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and there's like seven spheres of influence that you're trying to get your arrows to launch into. So it's like government, church, school, home. Penetrating. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, some people call that like dominionism, like dominating culture with generally the father's point of view. <laughs> um, so there you homeschooling movement, uh, patriarchy movement, quiverful movement, stay-at-home daughter movement. And that's that's where I was. Um, that's kind of the last Russian nesting doll. Um, a little baby in the right? <laughs> The stay-at-home daughter movement was kind of this idea of, well, you know, if women are supposed to be submissive to men, um, what do we do with, like, unmarried single women? Like, we can't just have them running around not submitting to anybody. So, I mean, that would be a travesty. <laughs> so come up with this idea that um, adult daughters are supposed to submit to their father until he gives them away in marriage. That can be literal. That can be metaphorical. It depends on the family. And um, some women don't go to college. I personally didn't, though I had the choice to. Um but your goal is to kind of learn homemaking skills and to prepare to be a future wife and mother and um, submit to your father, at least in the final decisions, big decision-making. Um, so that's that's kind of my upbringing <laughs> in a nutshell. How often were those mm-hmm. messages really explicit versus subtle? You know, uh, there was a mix of both. I mean, I remember watching with uh, another family or two a uh, video uh, about the 200-year plan. And it was, you know, you have 10 children, your 10 children have 10 children, and in 200 years we can take over the world with, you know, um, the patriarchy. Basically, um, I was given a book that was very influential to me right when I graduated from high school at 16. Um, it was called Joyfully at Home, and it was about being a stay-at-home daughter and why that was, um, you know, God's way. And so there were certainly, um, things that were more subtle, but it was, it was pretty overt in, in some cases too. And did the quiverful movement, I'm asking a history lesson, which you may or may not know, 
did it form in response to civil rights and women's rights movements or did it precede those i'm also guessing that this is a predominantly white movement but i could be mm -hmm. wrong so do you know kind of the origin of when this specific movement started yeah so i mean i think um i mean for hundreds of years people have had lots more children than is generally common today um, I think it kind of does go back to um, this idolization of, you know, the 1950s where you had um, this certain picture of the nuclear family. And, um, you know, so I, I think that's, you know, part of it. Um, it is predominantly white, though the um, stay-at-home daughter book that I was given was written by an African-American woman, um, her father, Vodi Bakum. He's also tied with the Gospel Coalition. He used to be part of the Vision Forum. So um, it's not just white, but yeah, predominantly, I would say. Great. And we'll make sure to link some resources about this movement sure. in the show notes so people can learn more. Because I know it's if, if you've never heard of it, it can be kind of a lot to take right. in and, and to understand. If you've heard of it, it's still a lot to take in. <laughs> right, right. But thank you for giving us a really clear kind of visualization of how this works and, and and also being really clear about you know folks can be in the homeschooling movement mm -hmm. for different reasons and they're right. not always um religious fundamentalists yeah. for you know we actually talked last episode about the unschooling movement and yeah. how yeah. a lot of um, parents of color are, are trying to educate their their children of color mm -hmm. outside of traditional classrooms where they see it as a really impressive environment yeah. so there can be lots of sure. reasons for sure. that sure and everything is on a continuum of everybody's experience is different yeah Okay, so you are no longer part of that community, no. <laughs> which, uh, I mean, I just find that so amazing that you found a way to, to leave. So how, how did you do that? How did you break out of a very controlling uh, environment where you were told, you know, you weren't allowed to be a leader, that you weren't allowed to have certain roles in the family? How, how did you do that? Well... When I was 21, um, there was a girl who briefly attended um, my church, and she quickly realized, like, this is not her thing, <laughs> uh, understandably, and she worked at a coffee shop, a local coffee shop, and she invited me to come visit her, and I did, and she introduced me to a guy um, who was really interested in theology, and I liked theology, and so, you know, we kind of talked, and I used to have a blog called stay-at-home daughter, you know, and I wrote to a couple thousand women on adherence to the patriarchy. Um, so he was asking me questions about that. And to my shock, even though he was a Christian, he didn't agree with my views of what I called biblical femininity. And um, he started asking me these questions. Um, and he, you know, he said he was egalitarian and um, Which you might want to explain for folks. We've used that language yeah, before, but egalitarianism yeah. is what? Basically, it's the theological position that, you know, women are people too, that women... Um, are people too! <laughs> this is Sarah Bessie says. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, just that there's equality for women from a theological standpoint. And complementarianism would be kind of um, the theological position for patriarchy. Um, but he started asking me questions and honestly it just really annoyed me because I was like <laughs> hey I'm a pastor's granddaughter like both of my grandfathers are pastors like leave me alone like I know this don't lead me astray guard my heart yeah exactly. <laughs> but you know he kept just like asking these like probing questions and 
even after the conversation he found me on Facebook and we just kind of you know ask questions and stuff and I was like if I'm going to get him off my back you know we're going to have to have a debate and there's no truer stereotype about homeschoolers um, than we are great at debating like it's (laughs) in our blood so you know I knew the complementarian or patriarchal point of view I'd studied it really closely I knew all the big players in theology who believed it and what they said about it um but I didn't know a lot about um egalitarianism or equality for women and um I figured that if I was going to be a good debater I should research that know what his weak points were so I could just knock the legs from underneath (laughs) that was my plan in your very feminine way right exactly and I would make him still feel powerful doing it you know that's quite an art form (laughs) yeah that's another long conversation (laughs) but um yeah when I started studying egalitarianism and um, Christian feminism to my shock and honestly horror um it actually made a lot more sense and you know I started looking at like the original language and verses that I thought I knew what they meant when you look at the Greek or the Hebrew it's not saying what what I was told it said mm-hmm. um looking at the message of Jesus and how Jesus really empowered women um women leaders like the apostle Junia I tell you nobody taught me about her in Sunday school mm-hmm. um all of those things came together um they were really compelling and I remember standing um in my parents kitchen at like um three o'clock in the morning I was up, you know, alone, you know, late at night because when you have a bigger size family, um, that's when you have alone time, <laughs> three in the morning. <laughs> so I was there and I just had like tears like streaming down mm-hmm. my face because um, I had just, I don't know, read another theological article or argument for egalitarianism. And I knew that if I kept asking these questions, there was a big chance that I would change. And if I changed... Um, my thinking there would be consequences for that and my whole life would be different because it was all built on this foundation of patriarchy um whether that was my public blog whether that was um my faith community and views of family and relationships um and I for a couple minutes thought you know maybe I'll just walk away and just quit asking the questions Mm -hmm. but um even though that would have been easier I I I know I couldn't do that because um, I, I just didn't think I could live with myself knowing there was like a deeper truth that I was, you know, rejecting like on purpose, like knowingly putting it aside for comfort. And so I decided to keep asking questions and keep studying. And needless to say, the debate didn't actually happen because the research convinced me. And I was like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> It, it didn't necessarily go over well with a lot of people in my life. Um, and, you know, people think I'm flaming liberal now or even something. I don't, I don't know. Just, But I, it, it did change everything, and it, it has changed things in really good and positive ways for me. Um, I met and married my now husband, Will Easter, and, um, you know, he believed in equality for women and it gave me a place to keep exploring that um and so yeah that's that's kind of how I decided to to leave those thoughts and ideas behind Mm. 
the truth shall set you free. (laughs) (laughs) It'll scare you first. (laughs) It'll scare you and it'll set you free. Yeah, most things in life. It's a really amazing story, although I imagine a lot of pain and fear, too. Um, And, And I would also say, too, like, people have this misconception that the reason I changed my ideas was because I've experienced abuse in my life or because some, you know, secular person got a hold of me. For me, the reason I changed was because I was reading the Bible. For yourself. For myself. Right. I mean, that, I wouldn't have changed for the other reasons, honestly. No, that's important. Where, where I was at in my life. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, I'm talking <laughs> a lot about that a personal exploration of scripture in my book, Women Rise mm-hmm. Up. I've been working on the introduction yeah. again about kind of my own struggle with scripture and the things that were omitted right. from the storytelling and how the stories I heard never included women, or if they did, the woman was always the antagonist in the story. Yeah. She was never the central character. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the stories that I think about reading in a different way that I'm going to talk about is Martha of Bethany, because yeah. the the Greek word to describe um, her many tasks mm-hmm. everywhere else in the New Testament is talked about as ministry, hmm. but it's interpreted in her story as many tasks. Wow. So what does that mean? And, and any other time it's with a, a male yeah. uh, actor yeah. in the story. And so we we talk about that like she's in the kitchen, but there's mm-hmm. absolutely no biblical <laughs> evidence that she was in the kitchen at all. Yeah. She was probably doing community organizing work. Mm-hmm. She might have been doing tasks to, you know, get the community mm-hmm. together because Jesus was there. Why do we think that she was in the kitchen? Not to say that there's anything sure. wrong with sure. that, but yeah. it does paint her role in a very specific way. And what would mm-hmm. it mean if we were to claim Martha as, you know, a minister in her community? And yeah. that's why she and Jesus were so close. So there's just so many things like that where we think the Bible says something, but it's, we interpret it in right. different ways. Right. So that's, I, can't wait to talk more about that as we get together in the future. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I want to talk about your advocacy for for survivors of abuse. And do you use the word survivor? I I prefer survivor prefer- to, I do too. to victim. Yeah. I just want to make sure that that was language you like. <clears throat> so, um, I think especially in this moment, you know, we hear a lot. We're hearing a lot of stories mm-hmm. about abuse, um, and usually they're stories about sexual abuse or physical abuse, but right. abuse takes all kinds of forms, and you've articulated some of them now, but can you talk specifically about your understanding of spiritual abuse and what that looks like? Spiritual abuse, I think, is um, very much the same as other types of abuse in the motivation for it. Um, if you look at any, you know, domestic violence prevention research or um, tools, it, it will teach you that abuse is always motivated out of a lust for power and control. So if it's a sexual abuse situation, um, you know, is there attraction there? Sometimes, but that's not the central motivation. It's power and control. If it was just attraction, the person would find a sexual partner who wanted and could consent to it. But they're, you know, using power to to dominate. And similarly, with spiritual abuse, um, it's using um, religious texts, whether that's the Bible or, you know, another um, religious book, um, to coerce, manipulate, control other people, um, or using a um, spiritual position, such as a a pastor or spiritual leader, to um, gain power and control over somebody. and so I think that takes on a lot of 
you know, different forms and, um, you know, it can be physical, it can be, you know, more emotional uh, types of abuse, but I, I think it always goes back to using um, spirituality as a way to control people instead of a way to free them. Um, yeah. And I imagine it could be layered with the, with other forms oh, of abuse too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. This is a tangent kind of, but did you watch or have you read The Handmaid's Tale? I haven't yet. Um, yeah, it's I think so, it's, it's hard be to pretty watch. triggering. So it's, it's definitely like, triggering. <laughs> but there's a lot of those layers of where, you know, scripture is being extrapolated to yeah. justify sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just made me think of that, like where Absolutely. you see all of that happening at the same time. Um, you've done so much great work with the Courage Conference and your writing and speaking, reaching out to survivors of abuse and, and teaching people in the church how they can provide support. So when you think about faith leaders or or people Mm -hmm. in congregations, what are some of the things that you want them to know about um, the fact that there are survivors in their communities? Right. Well, I think that's the place to start is recognizing that there are survivors in their community. You know, statistics are at least one in three women, one in six men um, experience abuse, and we have no research that shows us that it's any less in churches. If anything, there's, um, I I think, a potential that there could be more. Um, So recognizing that this is a huge issue and if one in three women and one in six men were experiencing cancer in your church um you'd probably have programs and um sermons and um you'd be funding you know cancer research work but with abuse that's not necessarily the case even though it's high numbers of people so i think first off you have to recognize it's there um and that just because somebody's a church person doesn't mean they're a good person. Um, you know, they may be an abuser. Um, then I, I would say to, to faith leaders that um, you don't need to handle this on your own. And in fact, if you do try to handle it on your own, that could be potentially more dangerous um, and revictimizing. We have so many great resources, whether that is victim advocates or um, professional licensed counselors. Um, police and law enforcement, lawyers and all those things. And I would see a pastor's role as giving comfort um, to a victim, but ultimately directing them to professional resources. And um, the way they can be a good faith leader is by recognizing their limitations. Um, I'm an advocate. I'm not a therapist. So I recognize my limitations of I can offer empathy and connection, but I'm not going to take that role. And I, I think for faith leaders to be responsible, they need to understand that too. And then really creating a culture um, where people feel safe speaking up and um, where they're not teaching theology that is based in power and control. Um, and, and I think you can do things to create a culture where victims feel safe, but abusers um, feel danger, endangered <laughs> in, in those communities. And I think that's something that we need to work towards. And even when the message is not specifically about this, there can be implicit messages that are harmful. I'm thinking of a time that I visited Mm -hmm. a church where the white male pastor preached about the importance of staying. Mm. And it was about commitment. And I mean, I I can see that side, but there was no, Mm. at no point did he say, you know, side note, if you're someone who's in an abusive Mm -hmm. situation, like this doesn't apply in those situations. There was Mm -hmm. no disclaimer. I think just recognizing, um, those, those opportunities and potential missed opportunities 
because that can just reinforce some of the problematic uh, mindsets. I, I think that's a great point. That's something I've enjoyed about the church that I'm in is they'll be talking about something and it's not necessarily abuse, but there's always that side note of, hey, but we're not talking about abusive relationships. And that's another subject. And I, I think you're right. That needs to be on the front of the conversation. I also think, you know, talking about referring people to other professional resources is great. And I feel like congregations could also have funding that they sure. provide if people don't have the resources to go see mm-hmm. a licensed therapist or offer to drive the person or, yeah. you know, finding other ways to support their journey of healing Absolutely. that might not be the actual healing work that needs mm-hmm. to be done a lot one-on-one with a therapist, but there are lots of mm-hmm. ways to show up and be supportive of people. Right. Um, that's really good. So we mentioned Me Too at the beginning. Um, you know, we're learning, gosh, it seems like hourly almost, if yeah. not daily, uh, just more and more instances of abuse in all industries, in yeah. all communities, including the church, for sure, which we'll talk about more. What do you think the impact of this of this moment um, where women are, mostly women, are talking about their experiences, what do you think the impact of that moment will be for future generations of women and girls and everyone who's at risk right. for abuse? Um, I'm, I'm actually really hopeful because, uh, abuse has been happening since, you know, the beginning of time. So it's nothing new, but the fact that we're talking about it this openly is new. Um, and I think when we know something is occurring, then we have a responsibility to do something. And what I'm seeing, particularly with, um, the younger general generations, um, like to call it like the justice generation I think that there's a stirring in people to say okay not only do we see this and we acknowledge it happens but we're not content to just let it keep going on without consequence so I think we're going to see more and more people um, engaging in work to to end abuse and it'll never be totally gone but I think when we work towards that abuse and safe relationships are such a bedrock of society in the world. I think when we do that, we'll see less war, less violence, less poverty. Um, I I don't think it's just going to be change in interpersonal relationships, but I think it'll be cultural shifts that happen when we start to take this seriously. And I'm hopeful that this generation is going to kind of push that forward. And yeah, Mm -hmm. that's what I'm hoping. I feel hopeful too. And I also see a potential thread through the work that you're doing, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. um, the movement for immigrant rights, um, yeah. mass incarceration, gun violence. To me, one of the central tenets is the human right to bodily autonomy, mm. which some people in the Christian community would argue is not a Christian value. I would say it absolutely is. Mm. And I think if we can talk about the importance of bodily autonomy we would be able to work and across different movements mm, for yeah. everyone's collective liberation that you have the right to say what you do to your body, where your mm. body is, that your body is in a safe and healthy environment, right. that you're able to thrive, that you have what you need. I mean, it touches all yeah. of those different things. So I'm, I'm hopeful too. And I see that intersectional work happening among yeah. younger activists, even younger than me. I'm starting to not be so young anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you're, I mean, you're 10 years younger than me, and I see these high school students who are 10 years younger than you. Right. It's really, yeah. it really is inspiring, and I think that they get it in ways yeah. that um, that I don't think I did at that age. It's really inspiring. So um, we talked about what we would love for faith leaders to know, but when thinking about, you know, people who are listening to, to this episode, there mm-hmm. are going to be people who are survivors. So what would you 
want them to know if they are at the beginning or middle or end of their healing mm-hmm. journey? What What's something that you would want them to leave this message with? You know, I think healing is a journey. And I saw this really cool um, graphic on Facebook. You know, it was kind of, um, it, it's not just a straight line. It's kind of, it, it was kind of a image of like a heart monitor. So sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. your feelings like up and down and, you know, around. And so just realizing that, it's it's not if you have a downtime that doesn't mean that you're being set back in your healing um necessarily you know it, it's just kind of the nature of the healing process um i would say that to heal it's something that you actually have to work towards and even fight for i know not everybody's mm. in a position where they're able to do that so there's no shame that i'm projecting onto people who are in those situations but to heal you have to work on it. It doesn't just happen. Like time doesn't just make everything okay. You've got to get the support of your, of a community of professionals. Um, and that it, it does get better. It, it does, um, over time. Uh, some days it won't feel that way, but other days it, it will. And just enjoy, enjoy those moments too. Um, yeah. And enjoy good community with people and when you can you know when even small battles of hey I did some self-care today and Mm -hmm. um, that felt good and I deserve that like those are ways that we heal and things that should be celebrated and everyone should follow Ashley on the internet Why (laughs) why don't you share with folks where they can find more information about what you're doing and the courage conference too yeah oh thanks um I blog at ashleyeaster.com. On there is my speaking page. I've got a couple of places I'm speaking, including the Courage Conference, which will be October 20th of this year. Um, That's an event to empower survivors of abuse and to equip advocates and um, faith leaders and anybody who really wants to be educated on this topic. And um, I'm on Twitter, Facebook. You know, it'd be pretty easy to find me there. It's just Ashley Easter, <laughs> not a lot of those out there, <laughs> but yeah, I'd love to connect with you. And we'll link to all of your stuff in the show notes, so make sure to check that out. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. This was fun. It was more uh, lighthearted than I was expecting, <laughs> given the topic, which I think is, um, I think humor is really important, or being yeah. able to see see things, you know, in different ways. It's not always super heavy that you can kind of see some of the ridiculousness. Right. For yeah. me, that's a healing part, is when I think of things that happened in my past, I grew up in a pretty conservative evangelical church, and I just kind of mm-hmm. laugh at the stuff that I heard now, right. which just seems so absurd. Yeah. If you don't laugh, you'll cry, and so That's I true. always like try to air on the laughter yeah, side. Yeah, it's good, good to have a combination of those things. Yeah. I want to move us to a segment we always do about things that we're listening to. I think we're both going to talk about podcasts, actually, today, and I know that you had one that you wanted to share with us, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've been listening to? I really have been enjoying the Liturgist podcast. Uh, they have a lot of different topics on kind of progressive um, theology ideas. But the the episode that I would really recommend in relation to this conversation is the one on spiritual trauma. It was excellent. You know, they brought in a therapist who, um, you know, studies spiritual trauma and talked about trauma and how it affects the brain and, um, you know, just really kind of the science of it and for me that's helpful to kind of know that the things that I'm feeling or the things that other people are feeling it's not just purely 
uh, an emotional thing. This actually changes, and so I, I would really recommend checking out the liturgists and the spiritual trauma episode. Great, and we'll link to that in the show notes, too. I haven't heard of that podcast before. Yeah, you should check it out. I'm always looking for more progressive, faith-based podcasts. Right, <laughs> doesn't right. seem to be that many. Or maybe yeah. there are, and I just don't know what they are. Uh, and I wanted to lift up a podcast episode, too. I've been listening to the Unladylike podcast, uh, which the co-hosts actually started the Stuff Mom Never Told You podcast, if anyone's listened to that before. Mm-hmm. But now they have one called Unladylike, Unladylike where they cover unladylike topics, <laughs> which I just love. And they featured one on being – I forget what the title is. It was about being – could you be feminist and be a Mormon, basically? Hmm. And it featured uh, a woman named Karen Kelly. She is a global human rights attorney. And she grew up in the Mormon church, the Latter-day Saints Church. Okay. And, um, you know, similar in terms of the kinds of patriarchy that you experienced mm-hmm. and, and the limitations on what women were allowed to do. And she really just felt like that was wrong. And she pushed for ordination in the Mormon church and started a whole organization. Hmm. Um, And she actually got excommunicated from the church for that work, which was really heartbreaking for her. And um, she no longer identifies as Mormon, but, you know, she's definitely made an impact on that church. And and maybe future generations of women will be... They definitely will be the beneficiaries of her advocacy, but maybe even to the point that, you know, women are yeah. ordained. So I think one of the things about traditions like Mormonism, at least for me, I kind of was closed-minded about it. And I think mm-hmm. we see, you know, headlines about Latter-day Saints, but there's a spectrum, just like you were talking about. Right, there's right. a spectrum of people in the Mormon church, mm-hmm. and there are people who are feminist and Mormon. Yeah. Even if the LDS church kicks them out, you know, they're still, they still get to claim their Mormon right, heritage if right. that's what they want. And so just being open-minded and supportive of women who are finding ways to push back against patriarchy no matter what the context is. So mm-hmm. I wanted to lift up that episode and we'll definitely... And I also wanted to say that the Unladylike podcast is secular, but I felt like they did a really good job of nuancing the mm. religion part, which is really hard to see in right. most secular media. Yeah. <laughs> like they just don't understand nuances of religion, but they did a really good job covering it. So I'll link to that and to, and to Karen Kelly's um, Twitter account as well. So for our last segment, we always do a kindreds of the moment. And I, I wanted to pick one that was very much in alignment with what we're talking about and actually a story that you helped me learn about about a month ago which is um jules woodson yeah who uh is a survivor of abuse her story was recently covered in the new york times over the weekend um in a video form as well as an op-ed called i was assaulted and he was applauded about an incident that happened when she was in high school Um, a minor with her youth pastor at the time, Andy Savage, who is still on staff as a teaching pastor of High Point Church, which is in the woodlands, right, of Texas, which is like a super wealthy part Mm -hmm. of Texas. Um, It's just, it's heartbreaking to watch, but I'm so grateful for her courage in talking about what happened to her and, and holding him accountable when his own faith community failed to do that. So I wanted to lift her up, and I don't know if you wanted to share anything else, because I know you know a little bit about the reporting that went behind yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, she came out with her story on a smaller blog, and it caught um, national attention, um, even global attention, I, I guess. Um, and it was just such a sad story to hear of her experience, but then when... 
uh, Andy Savage spoke to the church and said he did have a sexual encounter with her. He wouldn't call it abuse, but he, he admitted to the encounter. Um, at the end of that, his church stood up and gave him a standing ovation. And mm-hmm. just to see um, all that went into that church service, I watched, you know, the service and the like emotional music that uh-huh. they played kind of prepping it and um the just the the wording of the apology uh, so-called apology um i don't know it it was sad to watch but it's all too common and i was just so thankful that she was willing to speak up about it and she did so well in any of the interviews that she's been given and i think she's going to bring a lot of light and hope to to people and i think we're going to see change because of her story yeah, so Jules, if you're listening, <laughs> uh, we really support you and yes. are grateful for you. And I think she's also really helpful in pointing out some of the hypocrisy in mm. evangelical theology around atonement and, you know, Jesus died for my sins, therefore I ask for forgiveness and all is, all is done and in right. the past. No and consequences. I no consequences. <laughs> I don't have to be held accountable when you can tell that, I don't know how old she is now, but it's been like a decade mm-hmm. at least or so I think 20 years in 20 years so but you can still feel her pain like this Mm -hmm. pain is not in the past this is pain that she's experiencing and re-experiencing now and you know whatever your theology there has to be that relational reconciliation work uh and so I think she really points to the fact that this kind of cheap grace is not exactly is not helping all it's helping are people who committed crimes right right yep much more work to do. But thank you so much, Ashley, for being on the podcast. Thank it's you. been so much this fun. fun. Yeah, I love yeah. this. Thank you. All right. Well, we look forward to future conversations with you. I hope you stay around the Kindreds community because we have so much to learn from you. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 